Welcome to Desire Made Real, a Discovery of Witches podcast where we recap every episode of the television show spoiler-free. I'm one of your hosts, Mandy Kay, and when I'm not talking about Matthew and Diana, I am frantically finishing an audiobook that I recorded because I procrastinated until the day it was due to finish editing it. That wasn't fun. <laughs> Sorry, that sounds like something I would do. <laughs> Uh, and I'm Caitlin, and when I'm not talking about A Discovery of Witches, I'm being woken up by my Discovery of Witches playlist, which is what I set to like play when my alarm goes off on my phone. And it's usually I'm awake before my alarm, but I wasn't this morning. And I was confused for a good five minutes about what was happening. <laughs> That's awesome, but also really funny. Yeah. It's just been a weird Discovery of Witches-themed morning for me. Okay. Each week, we'll recap the episodes spoiler-free. We'll also include a segment at the end to discuss the books, how well the adaptation works, and we will likely dive into some spoilers here. But don't worry, we'll give you plenty of warning before we get there. Episode 8 was once again written by Pete McTie and directed by Farron Blackburn. And like, got a great name, but we should should mix it up. Have some different names happening here. Right? Like, I got really excited at the beginning of the season because except for the first episode like it was all these ladies yeah and now we're episodes and episodes and episodes in a row with no ladies in sight what happened i do think next week is written by a a lady okay well that'll be nice so okay i know normally we just sort of get right into the beat by beat but i do want to ask how you felt about this modern day episode versus the previous modern day episode oh this one's so much better so much better (laughs) (laughs) Like, I wasn't sure how I was going to feel about it because, like, you know, after episode six, which we just absolutely loved, Mm -hmm. you know, we came back last week with episode seven, which was just kind of very neutral. It wasn't great. It wasn't bad. It was just there. Yeah. Right. Um, And so with this one, I didn't really know what to expect, but I actually really ended up enjoying it. I loved Phoebe in this one. Mm -hmm. Didn't really like her in the first one. So, yeah, no, I'm I'm good. I like this episode. That's good. That's good. I feel the same way. I really like this episode, but I found uh, when I was watching it last night, maybe this is, like, the one that I've rewatched, like, the least or something mm-hmm. because I got, like, halfway through and then I just stopped taking notes and I was just watching it. And then I got to the end and I was like, oh, shit. Whoops. Oh. <laughs> well, at least, I mean, that shows you were enjoying it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so let's dive in. Here we are. At the beginning of the episode, we get a little scene in the 1590s with Diana. She's got the book, and she seems just a little obsessed with it. Just a little. She's. But, you know, what strikes me about this scene is that you can tell she doesn't ever stop looking at this book. So why isn't she sitting somewhere comfortable? She's, like, perched on the side of the bed, kind of, like... I don't know. It just, it doesn't look like the comfortable place to sit if you were just going to sit there for hours and look at the book. I agree. And I don't know, maybe she just like, maybe she was somewhere comfortable and then she moved. I don't know. I have no explanation. It didn't look comfortable. She did have her like gorgeous house coat thing on and she looked mm-hmm. very good. Well, her clothes looked very good. I don't think Diana did. <laughs> I think she looked fine when Matthew came in and was all, it's making you ill. I'm like, she doesn't look ill. She didn't quite look like herself, though. That's fair. That's fair. But I think that was acting. I don't think they made her look ill. Okay, fair. Maybe. Maybe. So. Oh, do you want to know something really funny? Mm-hmm. So my notes say, 
the book is broken, the words just run on the screen. <laughs> That's what my notes say. <laughs> I don't think they had screens in 1591. No, I have, I have my doubts. But they are just <laughs> running over the page, yes. Yes. Um, Diana says... The more she tries to understand the book, the harder the book makes it for her. It's resisting her. Um, Matthew says the book is making her sick and tries to get her to leave the book alone and go eat something. And she looks really excited about that plan. Yeah, not even a little bit. Yeah. But she does go. Oh, I did write down that Matthew is once again wearing his shirt with the deepest V and is looking very concerned. It's a good look for him. It is a good look for him. But that's just the... The quickest of scenes before we hop to the present day. Yes, with everyone's favorite, Peter Knox. Yeah, Peter Knox and Gerbert. And this is, it's a lot of exposition in this scene. And I, there, actually, there's a lot of exposition in this episode. Yeah. Some of it I like, some of it I don't. The stuff with Peter Knox and Gerbert and Domenico are my less uh, liked scenes. Yeah, because I just don't care about any of them. Right. I mean, because we already know that Edward Kelly had the book and that he ripped pages out of it. So we didn't need Peter Knox to tell us that again. No. But he does say that Knox bequeathed one page to each species. Not Knox. Jesus. <laughs> Kelly. <laughs> yeah. And, and apparently that's how they were able to call the book up. They think that might be how Diana could call the book up, except it they're just it's not. absolutely speculating on that point. Yeah. Um, but... So, so like, the witches have a page, the demons have a page, the vampires have a page, obviously. And they they think that the Declaremonts might already have the vampire page, mm-hmm. which is hilarious because actually the page that's in Septurus is the witches page, but whatever. Mm-hmm. And Nox is going to try to find the witches page, and nobody even brings up the demons, which is typical. Right. Yeah. And then in a little bit of foreshadowing, we just quickly shoot to... Sator, where Sarah is holding one of the pages. Yes. And then we get the opening credits. Everybody loves an opening credits. And then we get my favorite scene in the episode. Marcus back on his bullshit is what I wrote here. I don't know why. I mean, he's trying on a bunch of shirts. He's adorable here because he's going to go see Phoebe and he wants to look good and he doesn't like how he looks in any of his shirts. They're all the same fucking shirt. I'm sorry. Like, I no, they're the- not. He had a black and white plaid one, and then he had a gray t-shirt with a really weird neckline, and then he had the blue button-up one that he ended up wearing. But I mean, none of them really made him look any different. But they did to him, and I he guess. wanted to be perfect to go see Phoebe. I thought it was adorable. Look, I generally think Marcus is pretty adorable, so yeah. But then um, Miriam stops by. Yeah, because who's Miriam again? Yeah. I'm so bummed we haven't seen her this season. Well, like, I get it, but it's frustrating because I like her. I like her, too, but we, we haven't had much in the modern day at all. Yeah, that's true. So um, Miriam shows up because Marcus is avoiding her, mm-hmm. and we find out it's because he's basically mad at the world that nobody told him about blood rage, and he's frustrated enough that at this point he basically says, family's not important. Baldwin should take the Knights of Lazarus. All that matters are my friends and, you know, my human life, meaning... Phoebe. Yeah, I wrote down Marcus is pissed and has an Arwen moment where he chooses a mortal life. That's my joke there. Yeah. Yes. Okay. I get it. That makes sense. But then he heads to see Phoebe with the flimsiest of excuses. 
It is a filmy excuse, but you know, he gets to see her. Oh no, no, no! I appreciate it. Uh, that wasn't like I wasn't judging him. I'm like, yeah. Oh, okay. Come up with any excuse. Got to do what you yeah. got to do. Yeah. Um, he's still trying to convince her that what he told her last time is true, that he is a vampire. Um, and this time he brings proof, kind of. I don't understand why he doesn't just take her outside and do a little jump, by which I mean a very big jump. Right? Or just, like, do what he does later in the episode and, like, run to the corner store and back. Yeah. Um, but it's, because we have to have a little bit more of the Lights of Knights of Lazarus exposition. Yeah. So he gives her the medallion with the emblem. And tells her, you know, study it, figure out where this came from, and and you'll know that I am telling you the truth. He says he's the Grandmaster of the Knights, and we find out Phoebe's actually Princess Leia. Which, I mean, that's great. That'll be really convenient for the story going forward. <laughs> um, I do like that he's all tries to prove it to her in a, in the way of saying, "Here, please do research." Right. Which seems like a very Phoebe thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she works in an auction house. She studies art and history and knows about this kind of thing. So this would be the perfect way to get her to kind of come to the conclusion on her own. Mm -hmm. So I absolutely like it. Unfortunately, he leaves and Phoebe just throws it in a drawer. It seems like something I would do. Like, "Mm, I'm not ready to face that. Just put it in a drawer. Um, Then we cut back to the best friendship of all time. Marcus and Nate are chatting. Yes. Um, Mark and I love Marcus in this scene too like he's frustrated because he's lived his whole life following the rules not telling humans about vampires and he finally tells somebody and she doesn't believe it and okay this is the scene where we get like a wide shot of this room and we see more of it than we have before from from this direction anyway and so on the wall behind them there is like a like a glass box frame thing just filled with metal number sixes that look like he took them off, like, addresses from the outside of a house or something. And I'm like, why? Maybe it's a scrapbook of sorts. Maybe. I, I cannot remember anything about the number six being important to Marcus, but maybe I'm wrong. And then, also, above the entranceway, there's the head of a swan with a crown on it sticking out. <laughs> and I'm just like, that is some interesting set dressing right there. I was not paying attention to the set at all because I was just so enjoying Marcus and Nate's conversation. I, I wish I had that luxury because now I have this swan thing stuck in my head. <laughs> okay. All right. But if anyone has any idea about the sixes, please let me know. I mean, he could just like the number? I don't know. I got nothing. I got nothing either. But then Sophie comes downstairs and thinks she's in labor. Yay, it's baby time. It's baby time. And then we cut to M doing some dangerous magic. Yeah, this seems very, very similar to the the other two times we've seen her try to conjure Rebecca. Mm-hmm. Rebecca appears briefly but disappears. Um, the point of this scene this time is that Sarah is standing there watching her and is absolutely furious. She's terrified, honestly, of kind of M doing this high magic. Mm-hmm. And all I can think of every time I see this scene is... If you're a fan of Buffy, I get strong Willow Tara vibes here from season six. Right. I can see that. Because Sarah is just so afraid that M is going to, she's doing magic that's too strong. She's doing it too much. And she's just afraid. Mm-hmm. And then M like storms off in the middle of their argument and, and Sarah says, you know, don't walk away from this or something. And I just, I couldn't help but think that, you know, Sarah doesn't know Diana's trick of lighting the door on fire. Oh, <laughs> 
Well, that's also because Sarah's magic is more in like the the herbology and the the earth and the dirt. I don't think she could. Yeah, Sarah does light it on fire, but but I think that's yeah. funny. Absolutely. I, I bet Sarah could. Um, Diana could teach her that trick though, and when she comes oh yeah, back. yeah, Sarah's temper would probably let her do it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, quick phone call. Jerbera calls Isabeau because he's so arrogant to believe that if Isabeau has the pages, she's just gonna tell him. I wrote down the fault. Uh, Jaber is under the false assumption that he can intimidate Isabeau, which is fucking ridiculous. Right. And this is the second time in as many episodes that he's done this. I actually just realized I typoed his name and I wrote down Jerbest. Jerbest. <laughs> he's not the best. Um, the interesting thing about this scene that, that and you can tell Jerbear picks up on it, is she doesn't deny having them. She doesn't deny it, but she also very obviously doesn't care about this conversation and basically hangs up on him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's great. Like, I don't understand how all these vampires think that Isabeau gives one single shit about them. For some reason, and I don't know, I guess it's because it's only been like 70 years or so since Philippe died, which to vampires is not a blink long. of an eye, yeah. right? It's it's not that much time. So I guess for maybe from their perspective... Philippe just died, and so she's still this, like, frail, weeping widow who can't do anything without him and have no idea. Like, they're underestimating her because Philippe is dead. And apparently there hasn't been enough time passed in the world of vampires for her to have kind of made her own mark, which makes sense because she's kind of holed up in her villa for 70 years. Yeah, I Uh, mean, she was her own person, though, before Philippe died. Right, but Philippe was very much the head of the clan and kind yeah. of the head of the vampires, and they have not afforded Isabeau any of that respect. Yeah, very sexist of them. Yeah. And then there's a great tiny scene. Isabeau brings Em a drink. Em's mm-hmm. outside, you know, because she stormed off from, away from Sarah, and Isabeau gives her this great line. She says, never sleep with an angry woman. I thought she said never sleep on an argument. Oh, is that what she said? I listened to it twice, and I heard never sleep with an angry woman. <laughs> they mean two very different things. I mean, they kind of mean the same thing. Yeah. But, huh. Interesting. Yeah, I rewound it and listened to it again, Trent, because her voice is very low. Um, she doesn't Yeah, this project. show would definitely benefit from some subtitles. Yes. Or closed captioning. Um, and, I mean, I listen with my, my headphones, and that helps a lot. Mm. So then you're probably right. Either way, it's a nice little moment because you can see that Isabeau is starting to care for Em and Sarah. You know, she brings Em a drink to comfort her and is, you know, telling her, regardless of how she says it, she's telling her, you guys need to make up. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons she just like hung up on Jaber because she was just like, you're not important. The witches are Mm -hmm. important, which is Mm -hmm. just a really nice uh, character development for, for Isabeau. Yeah. And then we get a brief scene of Sophie giving birth, mm-hmm. which seemed to go well. Yeah, it's it's an interesting scene because usually birthing scenes end with the screams of a crying baby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this baby's born and doesn't cry at first. Um, so Sophie's obviously worried and concerned. You know, is the baby okay? She can't see it. She can't hear it. But um, then he starts cooing and then, or I guess she... And then does cry a little bit, but not very much. And then uh, Marcus comes in and has this weird look on his face. And that's all the information they give us. Baby's alive and Marcus has a look. And then we're back with Phoebe, 
who I just love the whole outfit that she's wearing. She looks so comfortable yet elegant, mm-hmm. and it reminded me of having to dress to go into the office. It's not something I've had to deal with for a while. Oh, I miss such days. And then she almost just leaves the office without spending any time on the medallion, but then turns around and changes her mind and asks her her colleague to take a look at it. And I want to talk about this colleague for a moment, who for some reason has an American accent, and I'm pretty sure it's fake. And I'm just like, but why? (laughs) You pay attention to the things that I just don't even consider. Well, his voice sounded so weird. He only had like three lines, so I was not paying attention. And at one point he says, leave it with me. And it sounds so sinister. But he's just some dude who works with her. See, I didn't take it as sinister. I took it as like overly excited. Uh, Like, leave it with me and I'll figure this out for you. Like, he was really excited because this is what he does. And it's in really great shape and condition to be like from the 12th century. And I don't know. I just I read it that way. I'm sure that's how they meant it to be. It didn't come across that way for me. Yeah. Um, My favorite part about this scene is she gives him the medallion to look at, and then she sits down her computer and just Googles the Knights of Lazarus. And then she's like (laughs) on their wiki page. (laughs) Right? (laughs) How do the Knights of Lazarus have a Wikipedia page? And like, even if some, like, like that drawing of Matthew that's on it, like somebody would have taken that down. Absolutely. Like, what the hell? But she does uh, see the drawing of Matthew on the Knights of Lazarus Wikipedia page and realize that it looks like the dude in the miniatures that Marcus was trying to buy, Mm -hmm. even though they would have been drawn or painted or whatever hundreds of years apart. And this makes her go, huh? And then she says she has to go down to the vault. Why? We don't know. Well, I mean, we kind of figure out why. She, She goes down to look at the door because it's starting to, she's starting to question. And now she's wondering... What kind of force would it take a person to actually open the vault door? Like, a regular person probably couldn't do that. I mean, she went down there because the writers wanted her and Domenico to have a scene together. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I mean, you can contemplate the force it would take to open the vault door without going down there. But Uh, it gave a great excuse to put Domenico and Phoebe together and have Domenico say, Marcus is the grandmaster of the Knights of Lazarus, and have me hold my chest in horror. Phoebe, no! (laughs) (laughs) that's exactly what I did Um, (laughs) but in this episode nothing comes of it Domenico doesn't suddenly accuse Marcus of telling a human about vampires but I don't know why he didn't do that maybe he assumes Marcus like vampires have to be made so you have to tell humans about them at some point yeah yeah that's true one thing I will say is that Domenico just sort of turns up in like the shiftiest of manners after closing after dark and Phoebe assumes he's a police officer. Like, she quickly catches on that he isn't. But I'm still like, after he leaves, why don't they call security, call the police? Like, who was this dude who just walked into your place of business? Well, I mean, she's too busy being concerned about vampires at that point. But her colleague was there, too. And I don't know. I'd have called everybody and be like, how did this dude get in here? What? What is our... Sec- we have very expensive things down here. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Oh, wait, sorry, sorry. One other thing. Sorry, I just moved my notes down. When she, when Phoebe says that, you know, she like stands up proudly and says, you know, uh, Marcus is the grandmaster of the Knights of Lazarus. I can only assume that she had a hell of a time explaining that to her coworker afterwards. Hmm, I didn't even think about that. Hmm. Yeah, the coworker doesn't matter. The writers don't care. Yeah, it's true. 
but <laughs> it's just interesting, I guess. Yeah. Uh, quick cut back to Sator and mm-hmm. Sarah makeup. That's it. That's the whole point. They do. And one of the things that I don't like about this little bit is they call a truce and they hug and that's fine. I wish we got to see them like casually smooch a little bit more because I feel like we get a lot of casual kissing with all the heterosexual couples. But these two, they get like one kiss this whole season, maybe two. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. Because, yeah, if if my husband and I had had a fight like that and we made up in a scene exactly like this, we absolutely would have kissed. Yeah. Absolutely. Kissed, hug, held hands, walked inside together, you know, all those things. Yeah. So that so, that is definitely a good point. I feel like that's missing from them. Like, they do kiss later in this episode, but I'm still like, they would have they would have there. Yeah. And then we go back to the hospital. And Marcus and uh, Agatha are in the room now. And then Miriam joins. And everyone seems very in love with this new baby. And then we learn her name is Margaret. And everyone has the best reaction. <laughs> no, Miriam has the best reaction. But really? Even, <laughs> but even Marcus is kind of like, hmm? Like, he doesn't say anything, but it's all over his face. Yeah. And then Sophie's just like, we like it. Good for her. Yeah. Um, and then Marcus and Miriam can hear her blood singing and realize that Margaret is definitely a witch, which, which, anyways, um, which we already knew. Well, which we already assumed. Right. Yeah. Um, so Marcus, of course, says they need to move to Sator for the time being to be safe, because if she's a witch, the congregation is going to want the baby. Yeah. Party at the Chateau. Right? Sounds like a fun time, really. Uh, so, of course, we go back to the chateau, and mm-hmm. Em and Sarah are in bed this time. Uh, still talking about uh, the higher magic. Mm-hmm. Sarah's talking about when Em and Rebecca used to do it, uh, when Rebecca was still alive. We find out Sarah was, you know, jealous. She wanted to be a part of it, tried to learn how to do it, but couldn't. Um, are you Sarah- at all a younger sibling? No. Okay, because I am, and I very much identified with everything Sarah was saying here. Like, no, oh. I don't want to be included with you but I am going to learn how to do it on my own and show you that I'm better than you. Yes, 100%. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. And then in, this, in the process of this conversation, and I don't feel like the conversation had enough like exposition to really get us there, but Sarah changes her mind and offers to go with him to the sacred space outside the walls of uh, the chateau because that's where the power will be stronger so she can talk to Rebecca. She is scared, but she doesn't want him to do it alone. And she doesn't want it to drag them apart the way it dragged her apart from Rebecca. Yeah. Yeah. I wish that this conversation had been a little bit longer Mm -hmm. for us to get there. But um, I mean, the end of the result is the same. You know, Sarah decides she'll help him do it. Yeah. And then we're back in Oxford with Marcus, who looks like he's going for a jog. Mm-hmm. I'm like, do vampires need to exercise? Interesting thought, oh. at any rate. He probably just wanted to run to clear his head. I don't, okay, I never found that running cleared my head, but sure. But some people do. And he's listening to that same song by New Order, because I guess Marcus only likes one song right now, which actually I can identify with. Well, it reminds him of Phoebe. Mm. Surprise, surprise, he's outside waiting for him. She is ready for answers, and Marcus is ready to literally spill everything. Everything and he proceeds to do just that. <laughs> yeah, I I actually enjoy this scene a lot. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's a long scene. Like, they, they go back and forth and do a lot of things. And, and they show the passage of time wonderfully in, yeah. in this scene because they're talking on the street. Then they're walking in the park. Then they're sitting in his dining room. You know, they just kind of go through lots of different spaces. Yeah, it made it a little bit more interesting than them because they could have just had them sitting still and talking about it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it made it more interesting. And we get to see, like, Phoebe's realization of how tough it must be to be a vampire sometimes because, like, all of his human family and friends have died and they have short lives compared to him. And, like, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, we get a conversation here that I wanted us to have in season one because it was in book one. Mm-hmm. Um, in this specific scene, Marcus tells... Phoebe that they eat raw meat, nuts and oh, berries, right, yeah. but they don't crave food. Um, they they do drink blood, obviously. Um, but that should have been in season one. And we talked about it in season one when Diana cooked for Matthew. Right. Um, because in the book, there was this whole scene about how she went to Marcus to ask. Um, and they compared them to wolves and, and all of that stuff. And she still had the raw meat and the nuts and the berries, but we never got it like they just showed it to us yeah um and so i think it's interesting that they actually put that as a piece of exposition in this episode mm-hmm. um we do also learn that marcus was born in 1757 which i don't think i don't think we've ever gotten his exact age in the show mm-hmm. and that he became a vampire in 1781 so he yes. is forever 24 which was not my best age so that's mm, i don't know if i'd want to be 24 forever well i mean Physically, he's 24 forever, but mentally, he does still get to age, so yeah. it's probably okay. And also, while spilling secrets, Phoebe asks who the woman miniature is, and Marcus says she's a witch, and you can see that that's, like, news to Phoebe, that witches are also a thing, but then they just move on past that. Yeah. I mean, but she doesn't question it. You know, I guess she realizes in that second, well, if vampires are real, other things are probably real, too. Yeah. And he, um, and he does explain off camera because later on they're talking about witches and demons too. Mm-hmm. But I just thought it was interesting how you can see on her face that she's like, what? And Marx is like, move along. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, we're also reminded, um, something we haven't talked about really specifically since season one, that the creatures are dying out. That yes. numbers are dwindling. Um, which, sure, they're bringing it up for a specific reason for later in the season. Um he tells her about Philippe and Isabeau, and then we get mm-hmm. more flirting. We get some sexy times. Mm-hmm. And I quite like that the sex was not the point of the scene and that the conversation continues after the sex. Yeah. Because all of a sudden, you know, she's dressed but still sitting on the bed, and then they're having fun. This is when she times him running to the store to get her ice cream. Do we think he paid for that ice cream? He says there was a queue at the till, so yes. Mm, I don't know. I, I think he did. Mark, Marcus is so good. There's no way he stole it. Okay. At the very least, he would have, like, thrown money on the counter as he's whizzing out. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> and then um, at one point, she asks if he turns into a bat, and he says, no, you know, we don't sleep in coffins or wear capes. But as we have seen this season, some vampires wear capes. Oh, yes. Yes. Or at least they used to. Yeah, I think Phoebe. they should bring it back. I think Phoebe agrees with you. <laughs> Yeah, and then we get more exposition about the knights. Um, you know, he's telling her about it, and he's decided at this point that he's going to let Baldwin have it. But Phoebe actually talks him out of it because mm-hmm. she she sees him as, as he is as a person. Like, he's a vampire who's lived forever, and he still chose to become a doctor to help people. Yeah. And so she's like, 
that's who you are and what you do. If you don't like vampire politics and creature politics, change them. Use this tool that you have to make the world a better place. Which is also what like Nat was saying before, but I feel like I feel like just the way Phoebe says it kind of sinks in a bit more for him, if that makes mm-hmm. any sense. Well, sometimes you need to hear something more than once. Yeah, true. But I mean, so at this point now we've had Nat tell him, Isabeau told him, and now Phoebe's told him. Yeah. So hopefully things will start to change. And he's actually, you know, internalized it, I think, a little bit because the next scene is Marcus and Baldwin. And Marcus is telling Baldwin he's not going to give him the knights. Yes. And I do also really love the idea that, um, like, he has this day or two that's great with Phoebe. And then he's like, I just got to pop over to Venice real quick. (laughs) I'll be back. Yeah. I mean, it wouldn't have taken him long at all. No. uh, And I'm sure he has access to Claremont private planes and stuff. I don't know. Yeah. Um, And then I really fucking hate Baldwin, like, so much. But I love Marcus in the scene. He is so ballsy. Yeah. Marcus is great. Yeah, like Baldwin is clearly pissed at this point because Marcus has just told him he's not giving up the knights. He's not going to give it to Baldwin. And then he turns right around and says, but I need your help because the Knights of Lazarus are now going to protect this child. Mm-hmm. And I need you as a member of the congregation to like divert their interest, like make them think about other things. Like in what world did Marcus think Baldwin would actually do that? I... <sighs> Maybe he didn't quite realize how angry Baldwin would be about this. I mean, has he seen the way Baldwin looks this season? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe he thought, you know, maybe he's pissed, but family's family, which is kind of what happened with Baldwin last season, right? He was pissed and he didn't like it, but he he still did what he had to do for family. Yeah. But he also respected Matthew and doesn't respect Marcos. Yeah, what a fucking asshole. I hate him so much here. I, I can't even really put it into words. Like... The actor is doing, I forget his name. Oh, that's going to bother me. Whatever. The actor is doing a really great job because. You hate him. (laughs) Because I do. I do hate him. But also I can see where later on when he does (sighs) portray the information that Marcus gave him, where he genuinely thinks, you know, if Jabert is worried about blood rage, that affects the family. But this random demon in their witch baby doesn't affect the family. Right. Yeah, I guess that's true. From his perspective, he's from not his, betraying the yeah. family because the demons aren't his family. Exactly. From his perspective, it's still like the absolute shittiest thing to do. But I can see, I get where the character doesn't think that way. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's fair. Except that he owed Agatha a debt from last season and he betrayed her. And I'm pissed at him and I hate him and I want to punch him. Except that would hurt me more than it would hurt him. <laughs> Yeah, my notes just say Baldwin is a fucking goddamn asshole. But Marcus gets the last word in this scene. Oh, it's so good when he says that Philippe is always so disappointed in him. And then he just walks away. Yeah. Oh, my next note is Domenico and Jerbear, blah, blah, blah. Mine is almost, well, I have Domenico trying to get what he wants from Gerbert. Gerbert trying to manipulate him, but not quite realizing that Domenico doesn't care. (laughs) Yeah, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And then we get where Baldwin tells Gerbert about the baby, which is just fuck, fuck, fuck. Yeah. Yeah. Bunch of quick cuts here. So if we're naturally, we cut to the baby. Sophie and Nate talking about the baby's future, how they love her, but they're scared. Like, what? Like, guys, that's how you tug at my heartstrings. And I don't want you to do that. Don't do that. Oh. Don't do that. I just wrote down that they were being adorable. 
They were being adorable, but this is literally right after Gerber has betrayed, I mean, sorry, Baldwin has betrayed yeah. them, essentially. So now we know that the baby is actually in trouble and in danger, and they give us this adorable scene, and I don't like it. And then we get Domenico talking to Marcus, and he's all about the um, the Blood Rage vampire, and he's like, when I figure out who it is, their identity and my loyalty will be for sale. The most honest thing Domenico has ever said. I really kind of feel bad for Domenico because he seems to be the only vampire without, like, family or allies, anything. See not yeah, have but people? you kind of have to wonder why. Oh, I guess. Like, I mean, at some point, Venice was his, and he has been powerful enough to be one of the vi- vampires on the congregation. Yeah. So for him to be alone, I feel like either has to be by choice or because he did something. Yeah. So I I just don't feel sorry for him. I guess. I just, I kind of do in this scene because he's like, he seems to almost be trying to get on someone's side or get someone on his side, but it never quite works. Everybody's got more important things going on. So do you think that maybe necessarily not instead of trying to say his information is for sale and trying to get other people to commit to him, he's really just trying to get somebody to say, yeah, sure, come on, you give me yours and I'll give you mine. Like, he wants to be a part of something and he's just really bad at it. Maybe. I actually kind of like that interpretation because he just seems, I, I don't know, I don't remember him having... Like, well, he was almost a nothing character in the books, so I don't think we learned much about his extended family or if there was any, but Mm. I just think it's interesting that he seems to be the only one without connections and how he seems to be the only one trying to make connections just poorly. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And then there's Knox, who I hate. I hate him so much more than I hate Baldwin because Baldwin at least, you know, has a motivation of protecting family, but Knox is just a fucking asshole. Yeah. Yeah. I... I had to watch it twice to see for sure, but I think it's unforgivable that he uses magic on a newborn baby. Absolutely. Like, that's unforgivable. I don't know what he does to the baby. He doesn't put her, he doesn't put her to sleep like he does the other two. I think he was just testing that she was a witch. Um, and he was alarmed by something that he discovered. He looked confused. But then Agatha walks in, and Peter just flat out tells her, we're going to take this child. So make the most of your time together. Ugh. What the fuck? And then Agatha was great in this scene, but ugh, Knox. Yeah. I think that's going to be the episode title. Ugh, Knox. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, Yeah, Agatha was great in that scene because she did stand up to him. And that must be terrifying for demons to be, to have to try to uh, stand their own. Is that the phrase? Whatever. Against vampires and witches who are, mm-hmm. who have you know, strength and page of powers and magic and stuff. Yeah, but you can't walk all over Agatha. She knows her value. Yeah. It's great. Mm-hmm. And then we cut to Em and Sarah going to the temple that Philippe took Matthew and Diana to. Mm-hmm. And they do the spell one more time. Does this scene bother you? It bothers me. Uh, what about it bothers you? Like that Sarah reacts the way she does? Sarah gets so excited to see her Rebecca that she's been terrified of for the last you know, four episodes that she walks into the smoke and just disperses it. Yeah, it did seem a little convenient. Like, I don't for one second buy that Sarah would do that. No. It just, it bugs me. Yeah. That's all I've got about the scene is it bugs me because I don't believe that Sarah would do that. Like, I can see her getting excited, but I, she has so much control. She's feisty as fuck. Yeah. But she has control when it comes to magic. Yeah. 
And the Sarah that I have come to know over the course of season one and, you know, the one episode that we've seen her in in season two is she would sit there and she would be excited, but she would try to talk to Rebecca or talk to M to get M to talk to Rebecca. She would not just get up and run into a pile of smoke like a toddler. Yeah, no, I agree. It is it is convenient. And it is just so that, you know, M has to do the spell one more time later. I know. I know. But it just frustrated me. No, I agree. Okay. I don't have anything else to say about that scene. It didn't work. This uh, is what is this? The fourth time we've seen yeah. M try to do this, and we're still not there. So we end the episode the way we started it in 1591. Diana is sleeping with the book, mm-hmm. which does seem like a very Diana thing to do. I'm gonna say, but also maybe seems like she's taken this obsession just a step too far. Well, especially given that she knows that the book is made out of creatures. Yeah. Like I don't think I'd want to sleep with the book, but you know. Diana, yeah. Uh, I do like this glimpse into their sleeping, not sleeping arrangements where Matthew does stay in the bed with her all night, but he just sits Mm -hmm. there and reads. Yeah. Um, We get a glimpse of what Diana is dreaming about while she's got her hand on the book. And it starts with a beautiful tree. And that tree turns into tormented, dying creatures, I think. Yeah. Or at least you see the faces pop up and they're Mm -hmm. like screaming and fruit is falling from the tree in a creepy way. Yeah, it almost looked like the fruit was turning into blood and, like, raining from the tree. Yeah. And it's it's creepy and loud. And Diana wakes from her nightmare. Matthew asks if she's all right. And she says, I don't think so. Yeah. And, you know, we end the episode. I really like that she admits that she's not okay here. I don't know. Like, I haven't seen the next episode yet, so I don't actually know where it's going to go in the, in the show. But... In fiction, generally, your main characters spend a lot of time denying that anything is wrong. And so I like that in this instance, she's not doing that right away. I mean, it goes nowhere. But, well, I mean, I guess it maybe goes somewhere. I, I don't even know. She doesn't. Okay. She, she looks fine in the next episode. Okay. I have a suspicion about why she actually is not feeling well, and I don't think it's the book. But I don't, I don't know what the show is doing with certain things since they've pulled things out of order and are doing things differently so right i don't know i guess with that we should wrap it up and move into the spoilers section yeah i am so far away from my reading of the books that i don't really have very many things in the way of spoilers but it sounds like you might so we should probably make sure folks leave now if they don't want to be spoiled get out (laughs) but don't stay out please come back yeah I did just want to say, like, the dream in the books happened in a completely different place. And is what happened the night that she had her miscarriage in the books. Oh, wow. Okay. So when she woke up in the show from that, I was like, what? Why did they keep the weird miscarriage dream but didn't have the miscarriage? That's interesting. Well, I'm hoping that they talk about the dream in the next episode. Do they not? No, they don't. Really? No. Okay, that's irritating. Yeah. Hmm. There's so much that happened in book two that has not yet happened in this season. And there's only two episodes left. And I'm, I have no idea, no idea what they're doing. I mean, they, they have completely cut out the miscarriage. That's not happening. Right. But like, what about her? Does her dad show up? Yes. He does. Yes. Does he just like randomly show up at the end of the final episode as like a cliffhanger kind of thing? Or does he actually no. get to spend a little bit of time with her? I mean, it's it's implied that they get to spend some time together. It's just not all on screen. Okay. 
Okay. Well, that's something. I actually really like how they do it. I Then I'm assuming that's going to happen. It can't happen in the next episode because the Louisa thing happens in the next episode. Yeah. Dad's in the last episode. Okay. Wow. Interesting. I don't think I really had any other spoilery things to talk about. I just thought it was interesting that they moved, that they kept, they dropped the miscarriage, but they kept, kept the dream. The dream thing. Hmm. And then they don't say anything about it. That is weird. Unless they're going to call back to it in season three. Maybe. Which is the only thing I could think of. I don't know. Who knows? But yeah. And and like the whole Matthew saying that Diana looks ill thing. You can interpret that later as her being pregnant because she is. But Mm -hmm. they don't ever call back to that. Mm. Yeah, I was thinking that that's what my guess was. Is they're foreshadowing that she's pregnant. But... I, I, like I said, they're doing things so differently than they did in the book that I just am kind of along for the ride now. That's nice. <laughs> we'll see what happens. And then as soon as the season's over, I'm going to go back and reread the book and have all of these things flooded back to me that you've been talking about and be like, oh, that's what Caitlin meant. Well, I was talking about this with Anya and I thought we would probably do our wrap up episode like like two or three weeks afterwards to give people a chance to respond to things, if that makes mm-hmm. any sense. Yeah. So if you have the time, you could read it in there and in our wrap-ups, so it'd be like, whoa. Possibly. Quite possibly. So I am looking forward to the the final two episodes. I, fe- I feel like there's still so much left. I don't know how they're going to fit it into two episodes, mm-hmm. but clearly they do. And you seem to have enjoyed them. So I, I do. Um, and I've heard good things about episode 10. So I'm I'm looking forward to it. All right, so we'd love to know what you think of season two so far. You can tweet at us at Desire Made Real. I'm Caitlin, and you can follow me and find my other shows on Twitter at Inferior Caitlin. I am Mandy Kay, and you can find this show and all of the other Eloquent Gushing shows at eloquentgushing.com. We are also on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Eloquent Gushing, or you can find me on Twitter at Mandy Kay. Join us next week when we talk about episode nine, which is my favorite episode of the season. Ooh. Okay. So until we meet again, remember that with every ending, there's a new beginning.